Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, as the Bank of England announces further emergency measures to support the economy, we ask if now is the right time to sell out of investments and are policymakers powerless to stop the route. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. Hello, thank you everyone for joining Will and I for this week's Word on the Street. We hope that all of you, our subscribers and listeners, are are well, are taking care of yourselves and your loved ones, and not feeling too dispirited at this this time. Um, In a practical display of our well-tested contingency planning, Will and I are using the wonders of modern technology to record this Word on the Street, as I'm currently taking one, uh, working from home a bit, bit of a step further. I'm working from isolation. Um, I displayed some symptoms of coronavirus from Sunday. So myself and my family have been in isolation since. Um, I'm lucky that otherwise I'm, I'm healthy. I'd like to say that I'm very young, but let's just say, uh, well, middle young, I think is a fair way of putting it, Will. Um, and I'm not Sorry, in, before I in laugh, any of I the fun... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's quite all right um but but i'm very i'm very fortunate i'm not in any of the vulnerable categories and uh, neither are my family members so so we are very fortunate um however my my mild flu-like symptoms are abating um and um i've been desperate to speak to someone so will you're my victim um <laughs> and you're at a very safe distance um we're linked across the airwaves uh, recording this so let's talk a bit about the gathering effects of the coronavirus outbreak um clearly there's a lot of concern um, of course, first and foremost, with um, the impact on people's lives and well-being, um, we're seeing you know very um, horrible um, items in the news about what's happening in Italy and Spain. Very unnerving. Um, but equally, when it comes to uh, the the economy, um, there's there's worries about the banking sector's ability to absorb the hit. Um, and clearly, we've seen massive action from policymakers, um, which has been, you know, very substantial. In some cases, overnight, we saw um, something from the ECB, um, but in other cases, you know, there's clearly work in progress. So, we'll just just starting off. How how are you? Are you okay? I, I believe you're still in the office, um, but I guess it must yes. be very quiet now that, yeah. It, it is. It is. It is very quiet in the office, like you say, Nikki. I've got the choice of desks. Um, I've actually chosen your desk, which is rather smart, I have to say, this morning. Um, but yeah, it's it's quiet, and and the team are well. It will have been um, deep so cleaned. <laughs> exactly, um, and uh, and yeah, the team are well and everyone's safe. So you know that's uh, you know we're just continuing, continuing uh, about business really, and trying to keep uh, keep doing what we usually do, but just from different locations. Fantastic, and and so um, in terms of the economy, we've clearly seen a serious step up as far as containment actions um, here in the UK um, and across the developed market world. Um, so. You've seen forecasts for global economic growth move very sharply. Um, a global recession is very much on the cards. Do you agree with that, Will? Well, um, it's certainly looking more likely, Nikki. And I think the problem in this situation, I think, is that um, 
various forecasters are asked to come up with a hard number uh, that tells you quarter by quarter, you know, what their vision of the future looks like. Um, and in a way for our investors, and actually, to be honest, all of us, I, I don't think that's necessarily the best way to think about it. And we've talked about this before, but the reality is that there are always, and probably particularly now, myriad, millions of paths, potential paths ahead. Now, some are more likely than others, um, but it's probably helpful to think about this full range and how incoming information changes that range. Um, so, you know, to, to sort of simplify a little bit, you can think about kind of your worst case scenario, your um, your best case scenario, and, and your kind of base outcome, your middle, you know, somewhere in the middle of the, uh, the distribution mm. that kind of looks most likely. Now, for your best case, if you think about it, just to sort of give you, paint you a picture, um, you can put events like, you know, a, a benign mutation of the virus or a successful test of uh, remdesivir, you know, this antiviral drug that's currently being put through its paces, um, which could significantly, you know, lower the case fatality rate. You know, you could say, and there's other drugs in the pipeline too, maybe they success to test successfully. Um, you know, further help comes from um, a degree of seasonality uh, in the virus, you know, much like it's, you know, other corona coronavirus siblings that, you know, circulates every winter. Um, now, in these kinds of scenarios, you get, you know, a short, sharp hit to the economy, which we're just starting to experience now, uh, primarily limited to the first half, but maybe linking o leaking over a little bit into the second half. Uh, and you see a second half rebound with, you know, that rebound supercharged by all the extra support from central banks and governments. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, and, and if you think about that, you know, first scenario, you'd, you'd very quickly see, you know, risky assets, you know, so stocks, shares, uh, you know, credit, all that kind of thing, very quickly recover quite a lot of lost ground. Now, at the other end of your sort of probability distribution, um, you've got the worst case. Um, and worst cases, you know, there's not one, but they're characterized by, you know, persistent flare-ups in uh, the coronavirus as soon as quarantines are relaxed. Now, you know, to be clear, we're not yet seeing any evidence of that on China's experience as they slowly get back to work, but there is still time. Um, and you can put in all sorts of kind of into this category, you can put sort of societal disorder, political dysfunction, you know, major default cycles, um, you know, a very, very difficult economic background. Drop. And actually, you know, here you could sort of say, um, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a shorter leap of imagination is required um, for worries about, um, you know, the large quantity of U.S. corporate debt, which is kind of perched somewhat precariously on the ratings line, separating junk credit from investment grade. It wouldn't take much of a leap in imagination to see that becoming a problem. And you've got the plunge in oil prices, which is helping to, uh, you know, fuel such uh, fears, forgive the pun. Now, you know, there is obviously in between that a huge range of stuff, range of potential outcomes. Now, for us, still the most likely scenario is somewhere in between. It involves a large but ultimately temporary or primarily mostly temporary hit to economic activity in the first half of the year, with the world economy sort of finding its feet uh, probably a bit later in the, se in, the, in the second half of the year, with policymakers pretty influential. Now, from a market's perspective, our hunch at the moment is that investors are kind of overweighting the likelihood of the much bleaker outcomes relative to kind of other potential paths. And, and this is this happens. You know, we do sometimes as you know as a species, we kind of you know maybe this is why we've been so successful in the uh, evolutionary uh, evolutionary battle. But we are you know prone to this kind of extrapolative pessimism. Do you know what I mean? When we see something getting bad, we assume it's going to continue to get better or get get worse for some time. Um, and that seems to be what markets are, are thinking a little bit. And this hunch is kind of corroborated 
moderated by measures of investor sentiment, um, which are, you know, these measures are sitting well below the lows reached back in the great financial crisis. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's very gloomy out there at the moment. I think that's worth bearing in mind. And, and just a final point. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at some of those worst case scenarios, remember, even there, there is the potential for policymakers to uh, do good and do ill. You know, so you could see just for looking at the example of the eurozone, you know, you could see the introduction, uh, you know, the worst case scenario you could see the introduction of, you know, force policymakers to take the final steps uh, towards, uh, you know, convincing integration. So kind of things like euro bonds have been mentioned very recently, a proper deposit scheme, which they've been trying to do for some time. Maybe this is the thing that forces them over line. Or on the other hand, you could see, you know, nativism and, you know, those kind of things win over. So, we want to be very careful of this kind of idea that there's only one path in the future, and uh, it's a it's a it's a doom laden one. Yeah. So so less soothsaying and and more you know seeing seeing a little bit how it pans out. And to that end, we we had um, some data I think coming out from Italy. Was there anything from that that we could? infer any encouragement to be had? Well, I mean, we're going to be watching very carefully over the next few days and for Europe as well for the next fortnight, you know, because you've only really just seen the, the proper imposition of, you know, containment measures or, or these very harsh containment measures have only really just started. And it takes some time to see whether that's showing up in the data. And also there's not enough testing still. So we're not getting a very clear picture. But, you know, there are some encouraging signs from Italy. The number of new daily cases is still high. It doesn't seem to be rising further at the moment, which tentatively suggests that containment might um, might be working. But we shall see. The next week or two, we're going to get a lot more data on that front. And any any other information on why, you know, I think one of the more frightening things that, that people are seeing is the fatality rate um, that's being reported from Italy. Um, any reasons there that you can see why it seems so much more severe than in other areas? Yes, I mean, there are, I mean, with fatality, the differences in fatality rates across all countries, most of that we suspect um, is, um, is explained by the numerator because, I mean, very you know, harshly and simply, it's easier to measure people dead or dying um, than it is to measure, uh, measure people who are potentially af uh, affected by this virus, but not necessarily severely. And this is particularly the case in the context, in context of COVID-19, because there are a huge range of symptoms from the really very mild all the way up to sadly, you know, fatal. So what we're not capturing is all those people who feel a little bit ill, but maybe indistinguishably from a, from a cold and cough. There are some, there's some sort of sociological speculation with regards to Italy, you know, people are talking about the greater prevalence of multi-generational cohabitation, basically older uh, generations living with younger generations, perhaps partly by, by economic necessity. Uh, maybe that is, explains your, 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 your you know, part of the higher fatali case fatality rate. Um, but it, it, so far, this is all you know, just speculation. And I think we've you know, got it very much signposted as such. We will only really know more like after, long after um, we've hopefully um, uh, moved beyond this. Seen the end, yeah, or, or at least broken the back of the worst of it. So yes. what about policymakers? You know, we, you talked a bit earlier about, you know, what we've seen some central banks do. Is there, is there anything more that, that we could anticipate they could do from here? Um, you know, clearly with, with shutdowns um, and, and uh, sort of lack of movement um, around European cities and, you know, clearly there are, there are commentators suggesting the same might happen here in the UK. Um, 
what 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 can they can they achieve by virtue of more um, sort of policy impacts? You know, what you're trying to do here is not stimulate economic activity. You're not trying to get people to spend or you know do more work or whatever you would usually do with policy. This is about trying to switch the economy off for a couple of months in order to facilitate those containment efforts. Now, the problem we've been you know we've been making this comparison for some time, and others have made it, which is really that this is not like turning off a light. Um, this is more like depowering or powering down a, a nuclear reactor. If it doesn't get done very carefully, you're going to have a meltdown. And, and the point here is, you know, that we know is that businesses must still pay debts with nothing coming in. Many are going to have to. They still likely have to pay wages. Otherwise, what are people going to do to buy food? Some people are going to have to make mortgage payments and rent payments with no income coming in. Now, left alone, if you think about it, that would mean a gigantic wave of bankruptcies, insolvencies, um, and so on. Now, you know, from a policymaker perspective, all of this would be a lot easier to navigate um, if you knew um, that all of that production, that output that you lose uh, during the shutdown would be regained um, at some point. But however, unfortunately, we know that's not the case. I mean, we've made this point before, you know, but, you know, my wife will simply not let me go for uh, two Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets every night, you know, when we get <laughs> decontained uh, or, you know, let out of our let out of No our making up for lost time. <laughs> no making up for lost time, sadly. So, you know, broadly speaking, your pandemic-induced, you know, financial crisis plan needs to forestall bankruptcies and insolvencies without causing downstream crises among people who are you know counting on being paid back it should flood the country with money or countries with money in the right spots uh, but not too many um, of the wrong ones and, and this is really the challenge uh, for policymakers um, it's difficult in truth and and what about the banks in all of this so you mentioned um, the potential for for increased levels of, of insolvencies and bankruptcies if if we don't see um, policy um, action. I mean, obviously, we have seen quite a bit, but you know, we've got to wait to see how effective that is. Um, we do anticipate that it should have a have a good effect. But how are the banks set up for, you know, effectively a, what could be a major rise in defaults? Could could this be the start of another? You know, great financial crisis. God forbid. Yes, I mean, I mean, in a way, um, the great financial crisis may have been helpful in this respect, um, because actually, you would argue now that the banking sector, the global financial sector, is a lot more able to withstand these types of blows than it was 13 years ago because of the after effects of the great financial crisis. And I think about it from two angles, really. One, you know, banks are simply now required to hold much greater quantities of something called loss-absorbing capital on balance sheets versus then. Very simply, they can just handle, um, digest, um, and continue to go about business um, in the face of a much larger rise in defaults um, than they could previous to 2007. Um, and the second point really is that, and we're seeing a lot of this at the moment, is regulators and policymakers have a much, much better playbook uh, for how to combat these kinds of things. So you've already seen like dramatic actions um, from the world's central banks to head off kind of chokes in interbank lending and other areas um, of, the, um, of the market, things that were so damaging last time. So you saw last night, you saw an incredibly dramatic uh, ECB intervention. It's a really great example. But also, you know, we've been talking about that the Federal Reserve is now pulling um, and pulling hard levers um, that um, that it took months um, for them to work out 
why and how to pull um, back in the great financial crisis. We just have much more information now, and that should be helpful, hopefully. What about confidence? Because confidence is clearly a key component of our financial structures. Um, and it was clearly one of the major problems at the end of the last economic cycle, that that lack of confidence became a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Um, what do you think we're seeing with respect to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and um, this is going to sound a bit weird, but part of the problem has always been kind of um, uh, visibility or transparency in a way. So in a sense, um, you know, the modern financial system, and in fact, the financial system since ages, uh, since since time began, has always been a bit of a confidence trick in some senses. Um Think about, you know, money. Um, so if you decide, for instance, that um, the five-pound note in my pocket um, is um, is worth nothing, uh, and enough people agree with you, then it is just a piece of, you know, machine washable paper. Um, and the same, in, tr- in a sense, was true. And I please don't do that to me. I need it. Um, but the same <laughs> is true of um, of, um, of banks. Um, it, you know. In the financial crisis, it became apparent um, that if one bank, or at the beginning of the financial crisis, if one bank thought another was insolvent and enough agreed with them, then it became so. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy, like you say. And I'm I'm oversimplifying a bit, but you get the point, hopefully. Now, in order to combat this, the regulators and authorities, uh, one of the things that they did is they decided to do um, regular stress tests um, where what you would have is a trusted third party would war game what happens to these banks and their business models and assets in kind of terrible economic um, situations. Um, so the Bank of England does this in the UK. Um, they role play. They have role played um, in many ways what is a worse recession than the 2007-2008 um, recession over a decade ago. And actually, what they found is that you know even in that situation, the banking sector still stands. And the last one was at December 2000, um, 2019. So I think that's well worth you know for those who are worried, uh, go and have a look at the Bank of England website. It's a very good resource anyway. Maybe for someone only as uh, uh, insular <laughs> as, uh, as chimpy as me, but um, but there we go. But I think you know banking's not impregnable. It, it is by its very nature kind of a relatively risky, economically sensitive business. But I think the buffers that the sector has are, are much greater and the transparency it has are much greater. And, and I think, you know, in a sense that there may be an element of muscle memory in all of this, you know, people are, um, you know, the muscle memory from a decade ago or just over a decade ago may be leading us to overweight the potential for a repeat of the banking crisis. Uh, we would argue it looks, you know, much less likely than some are currently arguing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's roughly what we could say, I think. We've talked a little bit about, about the, the likely, sort of certainly a short-term hit on, on growth, um, you know, and, and it's somewhat unknowable exactly how long that might last, but, um, but what that likely recovery profile might be. What, what can we see it say with any more certainty, if at all, as we look a little bit further out? Is there, is there anything, um, well, I guess comforting. I'm I'm hoping for um, that 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 you can you can say from from experience or or indeed just um, from the likely impacts. Yeah, I mean, I, we can't say um, you know always you know we'd always sort of temper those kind of those ideas that we have any better visibility of the future than anyone else. Um, you know that that you know we can't possibly claim to that. But what we can say is that I think. You know, this time around, you're seeing a very forceful uh, policymaker reaction, um, as we just discussed part of it. I mean, from the fiscal, from the government side, you know, the U.S. Um, 
action which is in the pipeline at the moment is is worth you know as much as five percent of us gdp the uk has already done two percent of gdp spain is doing three percent you know and there's more coming on that front uh, and more broadly remember that you know the driving force for economic growth um and it is really us uh, and our relentless, and we've talked about this loads on the, on the podcast before, but our, our restlessness and uh, you know, endless innovation, capacity for innovation. Uh, we always find more ways to do more with less. Um, and we've generally found you know, most problems we've come across, we've managed to find a way, find a way around um, and, and, and prosper. Um, and that's why you know, we find ourselves in the situation where we are. And, and if you look at sort of you know, the economy as it stands right now, you know, relative to 10 years ago, the rise of the digital economy puts us probably significantly more resilient than we would have been uh, 10 years ago. In fact, you know, China's digital economy was really launched um, by, by um, the first SARS um, virus. Um, and so you know, all of those things are still in place. Um, so I think you know, it's not the time for kind of outright doom and gloom. Um, it's a very difficult situation for many families around the world, um, and that is not to be underplayed. But I th also think I'm not sure it's helpful for us to get too downbeat about, um, you know, the, the medium term or the long term, because I'm not sure that that's been materially altered by this uh, this this situation. I mean, a, a, a word that, frankly, we heard um, consistently um, for for at least three years and then suddenly has has gone very quiet which is brexit um, mm -hmm. not least because I think we were all asked not to use it but um, <laughs> we know that we're due to come up to the end of the transition period at the end of December um, and the authorities had you know been very clear that 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 would be that um, but we haven't heard any more on that recently, and, and but what we have seen is sterling going to incredibly low levels. I mean, it, it hit levels not seen since the 1980s against against the dollar. Um, is is are the two things connected? What what are you seeing here? Yeah, there may be something in that. Um, I mean, certainly the. The, uh, the UK, the British administration hasn't changed its tune yet on that kind of end of year deadline. Um, and it's very unlikely that we're going to have much negotiating time given everything that's going on at the moment. The two sides are going to be very, very busy um, trying to trying to help people affected by this and, you know, trying to uh, support their economies to whatever extent is possible. So, you know, it, it wouldn't be too surprising if that deadline was delayed, in all honesty. Um, and maybe that has, you know, the lack of that delay. So, you know, the insistence that we continue on that timeline, maybe that's got something to do with Sterling's plight. I think there's other technical factors that hit play here, though. If you look at um, Sterling, it tends to be, you know, a pro-cyclical currency, so a sort of risk-on, risk-off currency, whereas the dollar tends to be a bit of a sort of safe haven play in these kind of situations. Mm. Um, so you may be just seeing that and some other kind of technical factors play out. Um, and it's, uh, it's certainly, I mean, it was an amazing move to watch yesterday, to be honest, one of many amazing moves to watch in, in capital markets. Um, and one of the things that we're sort of, you know, we're looking at from an investment perspective, you know, it's just one of the sort of many potential opportunities out there in the world's capital markets at the moment. I know that we've had many um, clients uh, and, and uh, some of our advisors asking you and the team, look, you know, why, why wouldn't we just... Um, put everything into cash right now, sit it out. Um, you know, everything everything looks so bleak. Um, and that's a natural instinct, right? I, I totally understand it. But but what's your response to that? Um, you know, those very justifiable uh, concerns that people have. I mean, you're right. It's, it's you know, I, I've been in the markets for a long time, as have you. And, you know, I don't think either of us have seen anything like 
uh, we're seeing at the moment in markets, and it's incredibly unnerving, uh, even to us, uh, you know, steely old professionals. But the 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 points I'd make a couple really. Um, you know, one markets tend to be kind of anticipatory, and so what they're trying to do is. Um, imagine what comes in the future, and so or pricing uh, a range of outcomes in the future. Now, what that tends to mean is, if you look in the post-war period, um, the and look at uh, U.S. recessions, um, so NBER, uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, um, categorized recessions, um, you tend to find that on average, stock markets peak eight uh, peak eight months before their recession. Uh, and they're back to where they started again, uh, or back to where they uh, peaked um, eight months afterwards on average, roughly speaking. Now, what that means is what you often find is that the bottom uh, in uh, stock markets can often be before the economic damage has really started to show up. Um, and it's sort of only just starting to show up, which really means sometimes if you really want to you know, buy low, sell high, it means you're often trying to buy at the moment when everything is just starting to look awful, um, which is a really difficult trick to pull off emotionally. And what we found in the past, and this is, you know, looking at across country studies and all this kind of, and this is one of the great reasons why we've had, you know, Rob and the behavioral team, uh, and they've been such a benefit to us, both from talking to clients and talking to us. And that is that, you know, private clients, individuals, retail investors have for many, many decades suffered inferior returns to those available to institutions. Um, and one of the reasons for this is the, is the behavioral side, um, that generally the time when we want to invest tends to be the moment when everything's most comfortable, uh, when everything's looking rosy, i.e. the top of the market. Uh, and the time when we want to sell the most uh, is when everything is looking absolutely appalling. Um, and that tends to be the bottom. Um, so this is one of the sort of difficulties with regards to investing in general. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we often sort of, we would, self-serving though it sounds, uh, we recommend kind of leaving it to professionals. And that if you can wait out this period um, and just sit on your hands, that's probably generally the best advice, unless, of course, you really need that liquidity. Um, but most of the time, if you can stick it out, you'll find that these are... These tend to be kind of, um, they're, not, they're not the routine for capital markets. The routine is kind of, you know, growth as it is for the wider economy. Mm. Uh, and that tends to mean that these are sort of more occasional, uh, albeit shocking events, um, that are part of the toll for accessing all that future productivity and creativity I was talking about. Brilliant. Well, thank you. So obviously, you know, we could go on forever, but um, but we, we we want to keep more for, for our next discussion. Um, so... Next next time we're going to have Ian Workman, who's one of our friends and colleagues. He's he's one of the bosses over at Barclays Business Bank. Um, he's going to come on and share a few insights around what's happening um, with his UK small and medium size um, businesses that he interacts with, uh, both clients but also just in the wider economy. And I think that would be really um, insightful uh, for us. And obviously, you'll be covering our usual market and economic updates, which which um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more for us to unpick. Um, just as a reminder to, to all of our subscribers and listeners, we're going to keep recording. Um, it, it may be, um, you know, a slightly different quality um, than you're used to, but we will endeavour to keep in touch. And if it makes sense to do it more frequently, then we shall do so. But um, thank you so much, Will, and thanks to all our listeners for joining us. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.